Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington. And with me here today is our special guest, a fellow security author. Lauren Kohnfelder wrote the book, Designing Secure Software, A Guide for Developers. Lauren, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's always exciting to uh, connect with other authors, just period, but especially other security authors, because we went, we, you know, we've gone through similar struggles to you know, bring a work like this to the world. So I want to talk about some of the ideas in your book. Uh, you and I obviously are both very passionate about the idea of how, how do we help developers build secure systems. So the first question is, of course, who'd you, who'd you write the book for? But the subtitle sort of gives that away. So if it's not developers, maybe you could color that out. But really what I want to get at first is why did you want to write this book? Writing a book is a tremendous investment of time, effort, energy, in some cases, money. It's a labor of love. It is. It, it doesn't make any money for you once you do it. So why did you do it? What was the problem that you wanted to solve? Why was it worth those investments? Yes. Well, several reasons. i am been in the industry for a long time. Started as a kid with mainframes, actually. So I've worked at Microsoft, worked at Google, I've spent some time in Japan, a lot of places, and I've been able to see the development of the software industry, seeing platforms grow. And for example, I was at Microsoft when all of a sudden people realized Internet Explorer was exposed to the internet and there were security problems with that. And that was rather eye-opening. And then later I was able to work at Google where they had a different approach and I think I saw a lot of great work that the big platforms were able to do in security that I was able to experience, participate in, and I didn't get the feeling that it was being shared out into the industry. I thought a lot of other people doing development thought, this is too hard. We're not resourced like the big guys, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm trying to share what I learned there in hopes that it's more widely practiced. And, you know, to be clear, my, my uh, focus has really always been in proactive security. So I'm trying to build good defenses. That's why the book is titled for design, although it does include both concepts, design, and then a lot of implementation is part three. So it covers all of that, but perhaps design is, is the biggest focus that I found very little out there to help people. And I think it's very important that security thinking go in from the design level, from requirements level even. And then also to get more people involved with the security process and understanding how it works and what developers are facing. So the book is very readable, I think, for everybody. There is a little code in it, but I've tried to make it very general and very simple as I can. So help me think about this problem. The problem being that developers are expected to build secure software. 
but that's not their chosen profession. Their profession is to build things. It's not to necessarily break things. Yet they're being told, hey, make sure that you understand how this thing will be broken when you, as you build it. How do we deal with that? Those are two remarkably different pursuits of a profession. And yet the business needs that to happen. How do we solve this? That's a good framing. And I would say that the book is very much an attempt to blur the line and not say that building secure software is like a whole other profession, unlike building software. I'm trying to integrate it. I'm making, trying to make it accessible to everybody. I realized that you will need pen testing. You will need a bunch of expert advice for things like what crypto algorithms to use, et cetera. But for the most part, I think most developers can up their game. And my book is actually written squarely to that. It's trying to be very approachable for anybody who hasn't looked at software may have found it daunting. I'm starting at the, at the beginning and explaining everything. I'm using a lot of stories and examples. But it also, I think, hits on a lot of big concepts and gives you the tools then to go and learn maybe a particular protocol or language and such. And of course, I can't get into all of that. So I'm trying to get everybody lifted up and ready to learn more about security as appropriate for the kind of work that they do. So let me, let me push on this question a little harder. And what I'm trying to do is put myself in the shoes of a developer. Developer comes out of a meeting with their boss who just came out of a meeting with their boss who just came out of a meeting with their boss. And the more bosses there are, the farther away from the actual tech those bosses become and the more they become unreasonable in the expectations they might have of a developer. So all those orders trickle down to the developer and the developer now has to make some choices about where to allocate time. And also where not just time of building things, but time in terms of educating themselves. So how does a developer, like what's a, what's a practical piece of advice for developers who are listening to this right now or managers of developers who are listening to this right now? What's a practical piece of advice for how they juggle those often contradictory demands between you got to build a thing, it's got to have a certain set of functionality and it's got to be done by a certain date and it has to be a certain level of quality and also this other completely different discipline. It must also be secure. How do they do that? What's a practical piece of advice? Yes, again, it's that two different spheres. And again, I'm trying to pull them together. So I would say at the foundational level, understanding threats are probably the beginning of having that discussion up the chain. And so from the developer's point of view, when they're presented with a task you know, on an existing system or to build something new, they either need to get some help in understanding the threats that that system is going to be exposed to, or they're going to have to take a shot at it themselves. And in the book, chapter two talks about threat modeling, but in the softest possible ways. I'm just trying to focus on the principles. And for example, Microsoft, if I can take a, a little side journey here on you, Microsoft had a very well-prescribed system. And again, I'm going back to the early days. It may have evolved, and I'm sure it has, but they, they were very prescriptive in how you need to do threat modeling. It was a big deal took a lot of people a lot of time, and it had a certain value, of course. But then at Google, it was much more informal. So I've tried in the book to build a chapter around that more informal threat modeling technique that may not, may not be you know, approved by, a, by an expert in it who could do a fabulous job. But the idea is, here are the basics. This will get you started. Everybody can do a little bit of it themselves. And so I'm trying to get people to begin. And then it's a question, do you have enough to explain to people or do you know then that you at least need to get help? And a lot of systems are not subject to, to big, scary threats. And you can kind of validate that just by spending a little time uh, exploring on your own. Yeah, I love the way that you're thinking about this, starting with the threat, like because 
we don't start with that, then what are we doing, right? We're not, we can't defend against everybody all the time. We don't have unlimited resources. We have to understand the game that we're in. So how do we understand that game? We think about who the opponent is, and then we define the game around that. So I, I hear what you're saying, that one of the ways to think about that is sort of the fundamental principles of threat modeling that might not necessarily be the same. That's a you know time-tested framework that might be pushed by a large organization. But in your view, what are those basic principles of threat modeling? I've structured it around the four questions, which is something that Adam Shostak has been talking about for a long time. And it's actually kind of a simplification on top of the early Microsoft stuff, which is built around Stride, which was the model that I did with Prayer Guard and, and that sort of started thing. But all of this is about helping, giving people a little bit of structure so they can begin to think about it. And then once you get rolling, and I give some examples in the book, for example, also, then I think people will be surprised at how well they can do on their own. So the, the four questions are, what are we doing? Then what could go wrong, right? What are we doing about it? And then how did we do, right? So it's really, really simple stuff. You know, and again, it's, if it's a mobile game, right? The, the threats are pretty small. You waste people's time, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Right. Obviously a banking app, whole nother story. Yeah. No, that, that's fascinating thinking about, those four questions. I, I love the idea of any sort of security model that is built around questions be, that are open-ended because the answers might vary widely. Now you still need to, of course, have some expertise around what do you do with the answers that come from that? Because oftentimes the, the answers to a security question maybe reveal more questions. But the second one was really interesting that you brought up, which was this, what could go wrong? So Someone who, let's say, okay, so let's put ourselves in the shoes of a developer and a developer is building something, but they don't spend every day thinking about what could go wrong. They spend, maybe they think about what might go wrong if it bugged out or something, but they don't necessarily think about how could someone attack it? Why would they attack it? Who would attack it? So how do we make sure that that part, because it seems like that question is a really, really important question that's part of the, I mean, all four questions are important, but that one seems like the heart of the actual security part. How do we help a developer who doesn't ask that question all day, every day, know how to answer that well? Yes. So, for example, I think one of the best things the book does is it gives you a whole bunch of stories and examples. Okay. So I, I just tried to pile that on. And, and actually, in the opening chapters on trust, I talk about closing your eyes, getting, going to a busy street with a friend and having them lead you by the hand across the street so you can feel what trust is versus threat. And so I think connecting this to our physical in intuitions is extremely important. Just as if you met an odd looking person behaving suspiciously on the street, you instantly have your eye on them, right? There's something not right there. And then you start thinking about it. So I think by telling these stories, it gives people a little bit of a view. And in the book, I call it about putting your security hat on, right? And then in, in, I'm trying to give you all these stories to say, Here's what happened. Here's what happened. And here are all the different ways. I can give you more examples, but does that at the high level answer your question? It, it does. You're getting the wheels turning with that metaphor. So let me make sure I understand it because I like it a lot. And I'm going to steal it. Okay. I mean, I'll, ra I'll credit you. Oh, no, no. But, it, but it's so good. Not mine. So what I, I think I understood you say was that a threat, and correct the metaphor if I'm doing this wrong, the threat is the car barreling down the street towards a pedestrian crosswalk. That's the threat. And trust is me being willing to put on a blindfold and hold your hand as you walk me across the street that you will not walk me in front of a car barreling down the street. So that's the difference between trust and threat. Yes. And again, I want to make it as physical as possible. And like, you know, I sort of tried to write it 
like a little story and lead the reader through. And like when I was editing it, my heart rate goes up a little bit because I'm imagining, you know, the busy street and the sounds you can't see, right? All those alarm bells are going up, but you know, you know, your friend is there. So again, just connecting to real life scenarios. But another example, and this gets a little bit more into the implementation part. When I'm talking about injection attacks, right? So I, I suspect a lot of your readers, but hopefully this little story will explain what it is. There was a softball team, and this is from Reddit, so it, it may or may not be apocryphal, but there was a softball team and there was you know, a computer schedule and the team gets to choose their name, right? What could go wrong? So uh, the team's name that they decided on was no game scheduled today. Okay. <laughs> so when they were playing through the league in the, in the calendar, the other team would say, you know, the Hawks, no game scheduled today. And then they wouldn't show up. And so this team was winning by subterfuge. <laughs> that's amazing. That like they deserve to win. Yes. But I mean, that's an <laughs> injection attack, pure and simple, but there's no code, nothing. Right. So totally harmless. Pick your own name. What could go wrong, right? It's not like you're putting a script tag in there or something. And that's, of course, another version of taking it. But So those are the sorts of things where I'm trying to really connect it to the stuff we all know and is all baked in, right? But it's uh, innate knowledge. So it's hard for us to put our fingers. And I think like professionals, I'm sure the people you work with, they know security inside and out. It's hard to explain to others, but we know it, right? We've, we've crossed some gap. And so that's what I'm calling, you know, the security hat. And I'm trying to give example after example, just connect it to really familiar stuff. And I think all you can do is hope that with a little experience and seeing it this other way, right, that, that people will learn to do that. And it's, it may be, you know, your, your born, inborn sense of paranoia or what have you, right? There are many ways of, that people, but I think having a broad set of people who understand even a little about this, I'd say if you read the book and half of it made sense, you were ahead of the game. Yeah, I think it's really important for members of the security community to uh, make these ideas and these principles relatable to people who are not in the security community, or maybe they are in the security community, but they're more of more on the business side. Like they might be uh, uh, in charge of a tech team, but they're really more of a business person. I think that's really important, and I I've definitely seen some cases where sometimes people in the security community don't understand those of us who try to do that. Like, this is so, why are you describing it so simply? I, I, where's the hands-on code? And it's like, well, you're in the community. Like there's a whole world of security professionals to teach you, but we need to teach outside the community. When we were talking about this metaphor of the, you know, the car coming down the street and the idea of, you know, this question, what could go wrong? It, it got me thinking about, it actually, I was today, literally like crossing the street, was going to, you know, go into a meeting and I found myself, you know, being that guy who's hammering away on his phone, waiting for the crosswalk to change and it changes to walk. And I realized that I started to take a step because I saw the thing that said cross before I actually looked left or right. And that is I immediately stopped. Like I think any of us would to be like, let's just make sure no one's running this red light. And that's a good example, I think, of where this, this common flaw that happens in the way most people think about systems, and it definitely applies to the, the softball story you said as well, which is people often say like, oh, no one would do that. An attacker would never do that. It's like saying no one would ever run a red light. There's a red light right here. People know they would not run through it. 
if you ever heard somebody say no one would ever run a red light, of course they're gonna be like, you're out of your mind. Look left and right before you cross. But people all the time will say, oh, no one would do that. No one would think to do that. No user would use it that way. No, no malicious person would even know to try that. People legitimately think that. And that's the same as saying no one would run a red light. So how do we combat that line of thinking? Because that, if that line of thinking persists, then this whole what's the worst thing that could happen question is ineffective. Yes. Well, all of the security bugs that make the news, right? I, I won't mention specific ones, but they're all often, they're that kind of thing, right? And one of the examples that I give in the book, and this is, this is a fabricated example, but I show what I call stepping stone bugs, or you could call it a kill chain if you prefer. But I have one bug that like, well, that would never happen. That happens first. And then another little bug that seems very small and, and obscure, but it is the precondition that opens up the second bug, which is bad, right? So by giving that example, what I'm showing is individually, if you look at either bug, you say, you know, never happened or it's totally minor, you know, the synergy of them is huge. And I, I think it's experience. It's very hard to have this discussion intellectually, but in a sense, what you were saying about looking down at your mobile device while you were you know, interacting with the street and cars, what you showed was you might have made a little mistake of stepping off a little too quickly, and someone might have made a little mistake of pushing a light. Yeah, totally. And of course, you know, and of course, you know, the air trap, you know, when airplane accidents happen or whatever, it's usually a series of small things that, that add up and get people. So, yeah. I love that you're introducing this idea. And actually, even the way you just described it is, is really powerful. It's a combination of small things. I talk about this a lot myself, this idea that we shouldn't think about vulnerabilities in isolation. We should think about them in the context of each other. We should think about the whole system in context of each other, because there's countless examples like what you're describing where, you know, one thing, not a big deal on its own, another thing, not big deal on its own, but those two things combined, they're like, you know, catastrophic system-wide compromise. There's, there's a story that I tell from one of the projects that we did where there was this system and it had this one problem uh, where it had an information leakage where the system gave up the user identifier for all users. Not good, but not the end of the world. But it had this other bug that was the way you change credentials. You didn't supply the credential, you just supplied the user identifier. And in theory, you only knew your own user identifier. But when you combine these two issues, any user could take over the entire system. And that's, that's, that's definitely an example of like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yes. Cool. Okay. So, so I like, I like what we're talking about here that how we're helping developers think about these security principles, what should the relationship be between developers and the security team, whether that's their in-house security team, or if they entirely outsource or, or uh, majorly outsource their security function, what should that relationship be like? Uh, well, again, as you referenced, there are many different styles for security teams. And like my most recent experience was in Google. And we tried, and, and in the book, I write about it specifically, we tried very much to be collaborators. And so when we did, for example, security design review, which is something that I, I cover uh, in detail in the book, we were very much sitting down with people to say, we're going to put on our security hat and look at this just so you won't be surprised later. And again, ideally, we might see something like, oh, maybe choosing the game name you know, the time, excuse me, the, the no scheduled name might be a problem when most people wouldn't. But I think collaboration is important. And I actually tell a story about, I guess, what you could call soft skills. 
which was a problematic security review that I experienced. And I walked through some strategies about, you know, when at first your, your help is not welcome, how you can deal with that. And this was, uh, fortunately, a story with a happy ending. And we turned it all around, but it took a lot of, of thought. And I think in writing the book, I realized even to a greater extent how much security is often a cultural issue, an industry issue. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of people looking around at what everyone else is doing. And then I want to do that rather than right, really going down to first principles and thinking through what they want to do. So there's a lot of psychology, all of that stuff. And I think, especially since programmers and security people tend to be really focused on the detail, right? Because you know, one bit off somewhere could be a really big deal if you're trying to do a penetration attack. Those sort of people, I think, sometimes also need to step back and look at the human situation and the human factors so they can find a way to be collaborative in those areas. So it's, it's, it's a little bit, you know, adversarial in that you're trying to find holes, but of course you're trying to do it in a helpful way and, and then suggest mitigations, right? Which, which to me, you should always pair up when you're trying to do this in a collaborative way. Yeah, I totally agree with you about being collaborative. It's, it's really remarkable to me how often we see the approach to security, this, to this partnership be the opposite, right? Where organizations will say things like, well, let's keep the security team out and and see if they can get in because that's what the attacker would do and it's like yeah but you have the advantage of information you want the security team to take advantage of that advantage in order to help you right and so it's good to hear you reiterating this idea of collaboration especially in the context of what we're talking about with soft skills so let's talk about soft skills a little bit more i think people talk think about building software and especially building secure software as a very very technical pursuit which it is it, it indeed is but of these different soft skills, you listed a few off. What do you think is the most important one and why? Well, I mean, it's, I don't really think I have labels for the skills, but I think it boils down to empathy, right? Because clearly, for example, the, the case that I write about in the book, they were coming up on launch. They found out about this corporate requirement to have a security designer review, and it was just like a big obstacle in their path. And so... What it finally took, I think, was meeting, seeing what their situation was. And then, uh, for example, I list some alternatives. So like the lead developer was totally swamped. So we found some other people on the team that we could get to answer questions. If they had a documentation gap, right, we would maybe look at the code, maybe suggest add this paragraph to your documentation, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we really did try to, to get on the same side with them. And that ended up working out very well. But I think more than all, you know, security shouldn't be the policeman, right? You want to be more like the fire chief who's checking out the building before people move in, at least in, in the part of it that I do, right? Hmm. I like that metaphor. Not the policeman, but more like the fire chief, the building inspector, to make sure it's safe to go live in that building. Exactly. Easily taken for granted, I would say. And of course, you never get to, you never get to, you know, like wave your flag and say, see, I avoided, you know, this from happening because it never happened. But it's still important work, just like, you know, we can trust the tires on our car or whatever safety equipment that, that we just totally take for granted. Yeah, this uh, this idea of being the fire chief or the building inspector, th those people aren't necessarily loved by people who build buildings uh, <laughs> because they're like the barrier to being able to monetize the construction effort. But without them, without that safety valve, my God, the, the 
the building, the structures that we would build would be just absolute garbage. People would die all the time in them. Sure. And I, and I think you can imagine, you know, the same building code, but there can be a guy who's mean, right, and is dismissive and says, well, everybody should know that your alarm needs to be two feet further that way. Or there could be someone who could explain it, could say, oh, the code is this, and let me explain to you why, right? Because I think that often helps people understand, said, well, because, you know, smoke does this in, in these sorts of situations. And, and then when people understand the reason behind it, hopefully they're good reasons for all of the code. I don't know. It can be done in a totally different way. And, you know, this book, like I said, is written for a very broad audience, but I would say that even people who are deep into security might learn ways of communicating with others or be able to use it as a tool to help bridge that gap because it is a, a fundamentally different way of looking at software, right? Sure, sure. Well, these are these are really great insights. And uh, as our time comes to a close here, uh, just I'm so appreciative of, of the insight that you, and the wisdom that you provided. Is there anything, any one burning question I didn't ask that I should have that would be really important? Is there any last thing you wanna leave our audience with? No, I think you did a great job. We touched on some of it. So rather than um, spiel, I'll just mention that in addition to a whole bunch of basic stuff about concepts, design, implementation, which, which is my attempt to sort of level set. And it's also structured, I should say, around my own experience. A lot of this is stuff I worked on or I worked with people in industry. It's not everything. Right. I want to be super clear about that. But I figured in the end, rather than cover everything, cover what you've worked on, what you know best. And then at the end, I give some forward thinking ideas about some challenges to how the industry might be able to do better going forward. And just sketch a few ideas like that, sort of to, to cap it off and to lead it forward. And yeah, I hope more people get involved in security and they do the security work earlier than later. And they'll be glad, I think. I love it. Love to hear it. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us together today. Thank you, Ted. Appreciate it. Good luck. Of course. For everybody else, if you want to learn more what Lauren is up to or request to appear on the podcast yourself, just head over to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.